If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Highway to Health. I'm Jeremy Quinby. How are you, my friends? I hope you're well. This is episode 51. I was so busy working on my uh, getting my mini episode out last week about the autonomic nervous system, hope you enjoyed it, that I completely missed that it was episode 50. So I'll take a couple seconds here to celebrate this milestone. For the early adopters of the show, back to the beginning of 2017, I want to give a sincere thank you, many of whom are colleagues, family, and friends. You all gave me some very valuable feedback and support and kept me motivated to push this thing forward. And uh, also because you shared episodes, this show is now being listened to in more than 25 countries. So thank you so much. And, you know, looking back over the 40 unique, 40 plus unique voices I think I've recorded here, uh, I feel fortunate that I've been given this opportunity to spend time with each guest, all of us with busy lives and careers, and it just doesn't get to happen very often. It's also been an incredible thing to spend, you know, time through the edits of these conversations and to write for them each with each one. And I, I get excited to release it as, as if it's my, my new favorite thing in the world. So uh, I hope you feel that way about each of them as they come out as well. And this conversation you're about to hear with Dr. Bill Manahan, one of the most beloved figures in the world of health is no exception. A great time we had together doing this one. That'll be up in just a minute. If this is your first time listening to the show, I want to welcome you. Highway to Health is a place for you to explore and create your own blueprint for health and well-being. Having worked in integrative health for more than 20 years, I'm acutely aware of how all aspects of our world come to have an effect on our health and our communities. And it is my hope that through the content and conversations here on the podcast, you might be able to navigate it with greater ease, make more informed decisions, and be able to be more present and engaged with your life in, in the way that you'd like to. I want to say a quick thank you to the new supporters of the podcast and to everyone who has donated to the development of this project. Each episode takes about 10 hours to produce, so 51 episodes in, you can imagine the kind of effort, attention, and resources this takes. If you feel like this has been a valuable part of your life, or you've been influenced or inspired or informed in any way by this project, would you please consider becoming a supporter? It's so easy to pledge your support, and you can donate for as little as $1 a month. Go to patreon.com forward slash highway to health. If you listen every week, 5 to $10 a month ensures that we can keep putting these episodes out regularly and develop new content for you. And I promise to keep bringing you the same amazing guests and resource that you've been getting here for the past three years. So I have a, a comment that came up here that I wanted to share with you because I feel like it speaks to the, the theme of celebrating milestones. I happen to know who, who made this comment, but I, I'll share it anyway. And the compliment, co comment was simply, dude, do you realize how good your podcast is? I, my immediate response was to say thank you and also no. I, I don't really spend any headspace judging what I'm doing here. If anything, I always feel like that whatever I'm doing is not enough. And I share this because 
This is all too common a feeling in most of us. Personally, I spend most of my headspace thinking about what I can do better and what's beyond the horizon. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this per se, but the gratitude piece of this is to celebrate the milestones when they come. Hit pause for a day and sit with th this time period and, and what, with what this time period has given you. It's kind of a chapter of sorts. And uh, what's, what's really important here is the, the effort and the connections that we make in this process. And we are always in process. So thank you for waking me up with this comment. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm taking stock of what it is I'm getting from this process. And if you like what I'm doing, that's great. So thank you. Uh, if you'd like to become more engaged with the happenings around this podcast, you can also check out the highwaytohealthpodcast.com website, now up and running, or our Instagram and Facebook pages for Highway to Health Podcast. And if, if you have a guest that you think I should have a conversation with, you can shoot me an email through the contact form on the website. So my guest for today is Bill Manahan. And if you're a medical integrative or holistic practitioner in Minneapolis or St. Paul, you've most likely heard of him or met him at some point. He chartered the he charters the Minneapolis Holistic Medical Group, and he's done it for over 30 years. And he tells me the story of its beginnings here in the conversation. He comes from a tradition in the Midwest that saw medicine as a calling, as a vocation, and what could be considered, you know, almost like a spiritual practice. Uh, I happen to be of the same ilk, and when I met Bill for lunch about six months ago, I felt like I had really met a kindred spirit. Turns out that he's cultivated a group of close to a thousand of us here in, in the Twin Cities, so uh, it was nice to know that that he wasn't the only one out there. And being connected uh, to a larger national organization of holistic practitioners uh, through this group, which Bill has been connecting with for the better part of his career. And what's most striking about him is his endless kindness and curiosity, uh, even even after 40 years and, and into retirement. He has an incredibly intuitive sense of what's happening in medicine and where it's going. He's a true bri bridge builder in uh, medicine, and his insight is so incredibly valuable, I think, to understand where we've come from and the challenges that we are facing in health as practitioners in various fields. Please enjoy my conversation with Bill Manahan. Did you grow up in Mankato? I forget where you're Medelia, from. Medelia, a town 20 miles away. Medelia, okay. A town of 2000. And then eventually came back there uh, and uh, practiced for 30 years. You were in Mankato the whole time? For the 30 years, uh, yeah. Is that right? You, you, had, you had started a, a place that's still, that's still going down there, right? Uh, I started Open Door Health Center, Open, which is a clinic for the underserved and uninsured. That's yeah. right. And, and, and that covers sort of all facets of health, too, right? You, you do, you know, sort of Well, it's general. an interesting uh, story. I actually started the Wellness Center of Minnesota in 1982, which was a holistic center with different types of practitioners practicing together. Physical therapist, a nurse practitioner, a nurse mental health therapist, a biofeedback therapist, a naturopath. Helen Healy was coming down oh, one day yeah. a week. Uh, you know, but... Um, that was 1982. By 1988 or so, uh, we just realized we couldn't make any money because insurance wouldn't reimburse us. 
Yeah. And it, it was a time where people weren't ready to pay money in rural Minnesota for med- for services, even if they were healthy. So I, I transformed it into the, uh, I just changed the name and called it Open Door Health Center, made it a free clinic for the underserved and uninsured. Huh. <laughs> and and so you were and, and you were just you, how, how did you raise funding for that? Mainly, I just did it for nothing. Uh, wow! It just I did it a couple. You know, I started out with a half a day a week, then two half days. Wednesday afternoon, my day off, and Saturday morning. And then I got a nurse who would volunteering, and we volunteered for a couple of years, just giving our services. I got a podiatrist to give us his building free because he was off on Wednesday afternoon and Saturday, so we got the free building. And then, uh, and then we kept track of who came there, and uh, and and about forty percent of them would have gone to the ER, yeah. and so none of them would have paid. So then we figured out. I went to the ER, found out what the costs were, and then I told I went to the hospital and said we saved you one hundred forty thousand dollars this last <laughs> year, and and uh, they and got so, interested. So they got interested, and they gave gave us thirty thousand for two years. And, you know, just sort of that way, we just sort of gradually got a little money. And then the orthopedic clinic had an empty space that they were going into enlarging and had an empty. So they were friends with the orthopods. So they gave us that space. And then we started. And then I got a couple of nurses to work there more often. And so eventually it just, you know, one by one until we now it's we see 10,000 people a year there. Yeah. And it's big. So, so did you did you have a did your private practice end up morphing into that space, or were were, were you outside of that working for no, money I, somewhere else? I kept a private practice okay. that uh, yeah that I had, and and you did some you did some education work too, uh, if I'm not mistaken, right at, at Mayo, or did some some all, mentoring or some yeah, kind of thing from uh, 1973 till about uh, 1980 or 90. I was on the clinical faculty of Mayo called a clinical associate, clinical professor. Yeah. Because when Mayo started their medical school in the early 70s, they didn't have any family doctors at Mayo. Yeah. So they came to me and another doctor in Mapleton and I would drive down there every Wednesday on our day off and help them set up the Department of Family Medicine. So I got really involved with their family medicine at Mayo. And then over the years, I saw, I had over 80 medical students and residents uh, come to me from Mayo to work with me for anywhere from one week to four weeks. So I, I did a lot of teaching, and but it was in my office most of the time. What was the, what was the impetus to start this uh, Minnesota Holistic Medical Group? It's totally selfish. It's that so it's I, 35 years ago or what? How no, long it was it 1989. So it's been 30 years. 30 years. Yeah, 30 years ago. Uh, it's an interesting story, and it's how sometimes just taking care of oneself and being selfish is a really good thing. Right, right. But I was involved in the 80s in the, in the National Holistic Group called the American Holistic Medical Association. I was on the board starting in maybe 82, 83, and then I became president in 1990. Okay. For it's a two-year term, so from about eighty-five on, I was going to these board meetings every three months, and uh, they were they would we'd go out on a Thursday night, and then the board meeting would be all day Friday and Saturday, and we'd fly home Sunday, and it was with fourteen other doctors from around the United States on the board, Bernie Siegel, Chris Northrup, I mean, really some fabulous people, yeah. big names, yeah, and. Uh, and I would come home and I'd be like a balloon that had just been blown up to the greatest. <laughs> and by about four days later, it was like all the air had gone out of the balloon yeah. because I was back with people who weren't necessarily my tribe. I got along well with my colleagues, yeah, yeah. but they didn't think like I did. Right. 
And so Diane, my wife, said, you know, there's a couple holistic, she was a holistic nurse. There's a couple holistic nurses I know in the Twin Cities. Why don't we get together with them? So like most great ideas, it's one's wife who does the thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I said, good idea. So she called them. I called a physical therapist I knew. And 10 of us got together at this nurse's home in St. Paul. It's on a Saturday morning. And they wanted to meet every. And, you know, I said, let's just go around the room. Who are you? What do you do? And what's one thing in your practice that's exciting you? And so they wanted to meet every month. It was so much fun. And I said, I'm not, we can't come up every month. Right. And, but let's do every quarter, Saturday morning. Okay. And so 30 years later, we're still meeting on Saturday morning, quarterly. Every quarter. You well, know, what, what was the makeup of the group at that point? Four or five nurses, one me, one doctor, one yeah. physical therapist, one energy healer, um, uh, couple, you know, maybe a couple others I can't think of. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and so then every, so when we're going around the room at these meetings on these Saturday mornings, I would sit there with my little pad and like, I remember that second meeting, someone gave, said, well, my favorite thing in my practice was a nurse. She said, doing Reiki. And so I said, what's Reiki? And uh, she said what it was. I, and then so at the end of the meeting, I'd go up to two or three of them and say, you know, would you tell, talk at the next meeting about it? So after that, every Saturday morning when we met, the first hour would be going around the room telling who they were, what they did, and something in their practice exciting them. The next two hours, because it was 9 to 12, the next two hours would be on giving a 20, 30-minute talk on something that I had asked them to talk about that they were doing that I didn't know anything about. Yeah. So that's why I say it was really selfish and narcissistic. It's like, what do I need? What do I want? Okay, I'm going to go get it. But isn't, I feel like that's, <laughs> it's funny because I this, this, com, this, this same conversation has come up a bunch of times on the podcast, which is, most of the people who get really good at whatever it is, their skill in, in health, almost always relates to a problem that they're trying to solve for themselves. Yeah, you know? that's true. And, and, it, and it's maybe more specific to health than other fields, partly because I, I think in some ways we're all trying to just improve our experience. Mm-hmm. You know? that's, yeah. And I think that's really the point of, of health. And, I, and I, it's, it was interesting looking back through, I, I, I'm going to pull up something from your past, which you may, may or may not even remember, but I found this thing about re-envisioning healthcare. And there was, and I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but someone put it on a blog that, and it was written, these were like eight things, eight transitions that you thought, this was in 2008, that, that would improve healthcare. And I thought it was sort of interesting because there's some of this stuff I feel like is the essence of what you know really trying to improve people's like well-being and just whole experience is all about so i'm, I'm going to go through a few i'm not going to go through all of them but a couple of them that like really struck my attention were transitioning from uh from a business to a calling mm-hmm. you know and in, in terms i'm guess i'm guessing you were talking about do you remember any of this Oh, yeah. People yeah. going into healthcare yeah. always went in with a calling and big empathy and stuff. Yeah. And then business in the 70s, 80s started taking over. And I yeah. was part of that transition. I saw it happen about the mid 80s. There was almost a flip. Yeah. And, and suddenly it became a business more than a calling. Yeah. And, and then the, the, um, the transition from science to being an art. Again, I feel like we've, we've, that, that's really the, the history you know, of, of medicine. And, and suddenly we became so science-based right. and now we're trying to get back to the, the, yeah. <laughs> the Those two are quite again. similar in the business and the healing. It's true, and, right? you know, Yeah, it went from pretty much all art, not a lot of science, to way too much science in the sense that we lost the human part, the spirit part of it, the, the humanity of it. Yeah. And it was just with the science of it. And now we're hopefully coming back to some nice middle point where we have good science and 
and the art of he- healing. And and to me, that that was like the that the whole heart of integrative health. You know, really looking at what we're what we're what we're even talking about with integrative health. I think it's it's become this like you know catchphrase now. And there's not a lot of real integration going on in the way that we're like looking at whole as people as whole beings as whole experiencers or however we want to say it. That we're 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 really just looking at the finite parts of those people, but we're not putting them all together in terms of like how can we improve the the the, the wholeness of this and have some sort of coordination in the effort. I mean, that's the thing that I've been working on for you know the last ten years in my career is. It's really about me building these these you know relationships or partnerships with the people that I am aligned with in my practice, and it's it's not easy to find them actually. <laughs> and once I get a few of them, but you know, it, I, I and I I've done some work out at Northwestern, um, doing some lectures and talking about business, and and one of the things that I try to remind students of is that really that is your business. You know, if you can take yourself out of the equation. You know, eventually, if you're not if you're not the most important part of your business, then you've got a business. You know, mm-hmm. so if it's this network that you provide for people. That's really what they're coming to you for. Eventually, we we all have a certain amount of skill, but we're all limited in that skill too. You know, so taking the narcissism out of it. That's <laughs> a nice way to put it. Yeah. Um, and then the other one of the other ones that really struck me was the 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 focus the you know transition from the focus on individual health. To community health, mm-hmm. because we are really only as well as our community is when it comes to the impacts that, you know, that, that our, our how, how our sense of well-being is, is is laid out has to do with what our community looks like. Yeah, it's a both and. We, at times we need a broken bone fixed or a ruptured appendix taken care of, but we've right. forgotten that there's also the whole, the community, the uh, uh, the. Um, how important it is of just how if our if we feel a sense of tribe and feel of neighborliness and all the you know feeling our, that our life has meaning and purpose those yeah. things are really what at the big picture make health you know there's the determinants of health right. you have poverty all these other things and they've been shown over and over again that if you have very low determinants of health you just have a basically healthy population if you have very high you have a very sick population right so yeah. the determinants of health are looking at the broader public health picture and they're pretty important yeah and 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 it, and and how the two kind of feed off one another you know i mean yeah. the, i i think about this a lot you know when we look at like you know the the big the big diseases the cancers diabetes you know some of these things that i think are very much impacted by how we're feeling you know our, our just our, our 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 level of well-being has to has a you know that's and it's and even I've I've done a, a few food podcasts in the last um, month or so, and it's interesting because I'm lo- looking at it from different angles, from people who do work with cancer patients to people who are really just trying to improve their they have you know cholesterol issues or they have they they're you know getting up there into the category of being overweight or obese and how to how to get out of that pattern and you know I feel like almost all of it tends to you know circulate around what their environment is like, you know, the, the environment that they grew up in, and then the, what their current environment is like in terms of what their work, um, you know, load is or work yeah. stresses and family stresses and all that stuff. I feel like it's it, it all becomes very interrelated. And like you said, if, if you have a broken bone or your appendix ruptures or something like that, you we are so fortunate to have right. Western medicine. But 
the, there's so much going on right now that we're just not able to sort of deal with with you know basic basic human needs too that mm-hmm. lead that lead to the health complications that we end up addressing, and that and that kind of leads a little bit to the a couple of the other things. One of them I I, I liked was unrealistic expectations transitioning from that into realistic ex- expectations. You know, and sort of the, 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 the idea I think you had was going from living in fear of illness and death to an acceptance that fear and death are a normal part of life. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, that, was, that <laughs> was great. And I haven't heard anybody say it in that way before. Uh, and, 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 and that you would say, and also that these are these things. You know, it's like we, we like to think of things as so black and white. Yeah. I'm a middle child, so I always see both sides of it. <laughs> I, I, one of the big changes that I've loved is having palliative care practitioners, nurses, and doctors because I think we went a little crazy with trying to keep people alive, and then that sort of shifted to the norm that everybody said, I need to stay alive as long as I can possibly, and so give me any treatment yeah. you want for this cancer. Yeah. And and, you know, I think now with palliative care practitioners coming in to help you talk it over with the family and everything, a lot of people just say, no, I think I'll, you know, unless you have dramatic proof that this treatment helps, which so often we don't with cancer treatments especially, yeah. I, I think I'll just skip it and go home. And there are many more people now doing that than five and ten years ago. Yeah. yeah. And they just, study after study shows they have a better quality of life and death. Yeah. Uh, so it uh, it's an interesting change, and and that's that's something that I think a lot of people don't we because we live in this sort of fear of death we don't we don't want to think about what our death experience might be like yeah and so we get to that end point and have made no decisions <laughs> whatsoever about what to do at that point yeah and the and the financial consequences of of you know just maintaining breathing basically or, or heart yeah. rate yeah. You and I have have kind of an interesting, um, sim- similar background that I, I I thought was the when we met the first time and started talking about our backgrounds that we both got into medicine after being English majors. <laughs> That's right. I've, yes. <laughs> so, is, is there is, do you have any thoughts about that years after? Because you're you're one of the few people that I've actually met in medicine who's who started out you know <laughs> that that way. Do you, do you think it's, it's affected the way that you think about medicine and the way that you've practiced? Yes, I, uh, I definitely think it did. And uh, it started out, I was going to be a coach. I liked athletics, but college athletics was not as much fun as high school athletics. And yeah. So about end of sophomore year, I went to a guidance counselor and uh, we took a test. And number one was to be a rancher and number three was to be a farmer. And because I'd just been working on farms and ranches in my summers. Yeah. And I loved, I loved the outdoors. In retrospect, I realized what I loved was the independence. Uh-huh. No, you know, they're pretty independent people. They, it's true. You just do your thing. Uh, and I found myself pretty independent as a practitioner. Yeah. But uh, anyway, number eight was physician. And I'm looking at the list. I think I'll be a physician. And the counselor said, well, have you thought of that before? No. Do you, you know, no, you've never, you've talked about people? No, I've never, I've never thought about it. 
He said, why are you picking? I said, I don't know. I just, it was, <laughs> I just looked at it and said, I think I'll be a physician. He said, well, no, there's got to be a reason. He said, well, I remember a house call where our local physician in my little town, I was pretty sick, and he paid a house call and came to me. And I remember he checked me over, and when he left, and then I felt better. He hadn't done anything. And I felt quite a bit better after he left. And so that impressed me. But if I don't know. I'd never given it a thought till you asked me right now. So, uh, <laughs> what, do, what do you think about that experience now? Well, I think that uh, study after study has shown that uh, the power of someone in a position of power, like a doctor, nurse, counselor, priest, minister, yeah. rabbi, if they are there and really hear you and listen to you and give you soothing comfort, that your whole immune system then kicks into gear. And you, it's not just all in your head, it's that it truly is healing. Yeah. And that's what it felt like, that he was coming to my house in my bed, looking over me, being nice to me, checking me over. I don't even think he gave a treatment or anything, but it's like I got well the next day. Yeah. It, uh, and I think that uh, you know so much of our healing is our own fears, our own immune system, our own just fear, you know, what we're afraid yeah. of. Yeah. Yeah, and and the and the pattern of sort of being in that for long periods of time. I think we we only know people from wherever we meet them. Yeah, you know, and so you don't always know. You see someone who's very anxious and you know right. fearful of coming into your room, but they they we don't know what that whole you know backstory is. So the guidance counselor at college says to me, uh, "Well, uh, what you know, talked about being a physician." And I said, "What do you want to major in?" And I said, "Well, what what can I major?" He said, "Anything." And I, and I said, really, I don't have to major in physics or biochemistry or, you know, something. Yeah. And he said, no, we just have changed. Medical schools have just changed now that you can pretty used to be had to major. You have to take some pre-med courses, but yeah. you don't have to major. And I said, wow. And I'm sitting there thinking, he said, what do you like to do? I said, I like to read. He said, well, why don't you major in English? I said, great, I can major in English. So that's how much, <laughs> <laughs> that's how much thought it took right then. And, and I, you know, it's just, I think half the doctors should be majoring in English or philosophy or history. I think that's true, too. Because it gives you just this broad picture of humanity and of the world. And so much of what we do in, in our practice, especially in primary care, it relates to the people's lives and who they are as human beings. Yeah. So I, I have a good friend who's a doctor who, whose mother was an art teacher and he was determined, he ended up going to St. John's as well, but he's much younger than me. And he was very sort of driven, got done with college in three years, had, had really like worked hard in, in high school, worked hard in college, was all ready to, to go to school. And when he started applying for medical schools, they didn't accept him. Ooh. And uh, it was kind of a big wake-up call. And it's interesting how that little shift, you know, changed the courses of things in his life. But he ended up working um, sort of as an apprentice to a to an orthopedic surgeon who started giving him all these different things, papers to write for him and help him out with different kinds of things. And he started unlocking all this, like, creative side of himself that he <laughs> didn't even realize. And then from there went into medical school and ended up, ended up getting into Georgetown. So it was like... Not really a problem. <laughs> wow, but but it but it really says something about like that that whole idea of thinking about things just from from a science based perspective or or from just thinking about this very narrow view or the way that we've you know the, the way that the system has has gotten less generalized. You know, yeah. I think that there are there are problems there are there are some good things about it. Obviously, there are some people who are excelling in like amazing areas. But then we also have lost some of the generality, which I think you have, was a big part of, I mean, it seems like naturally who you are and, and why you've 
put yourself in the center of like all of these different kinds of, you know, ways of healing yeah. that, that I think should be, we, we should be more exposed to in, in, in medical fields at an earlier point too. Yeah, we need all kinds. And I think one of the things that would be helpful is more uh, help for young pre-med and medical students to, mm-hmm. uh, to figure out who they are. You know, and, and some are much narrower and do better with a very defined field, and others of us are more generalists, and, but we don't get much help in figuring that out. And I think we're at a stage where there's the kind of testing and counseling that'd be pretty easy to say, oh, I'm this kind of a Myers-Briggs person, and they have this kind of Enneagram, I have this kind of astrologic field, yeah. that I clearly shouldn't become a brain surgeon. Right, <laughs> you know, it's, right. And, but when we don't get much help on that, we, it's much harder to figure out. I, I had a couple times I had a, a student like who uh, at Mayo Clinic and she spent a two month rotation with a radiologist and he was just great. And it was like her middle of junior, early senior year when she was applying to residency. So she decided to go into radiology. Mm. Well, after a year in radiology or a year and a half, she decided, I'm not a radiologist. Yeah. But and then she realized, oh, it's because that person was so good. Right. And I just sort of went in and she had no other help. And and so then she struggled, left medical school for a while, didn't know what to do. uh, I mean, left residency. Yeah, she, yeah, she, uh, so, uh, yeah, we need more help with uh, help with students at all levels to help them figure out who they are. It's it's so important if if when when you consider like what you're what you're saying is, you know, like really starting to ask the, the hard questions at a much earlier point because these medical students that are out, you know, coming out of school now or are going into residency are going to have three hundred to $400,000 in debt. Right. And, you know, at, we, we all think doctors get paid well, but you don't for a while. <laughs> and We get paid plenty, but, right. uh, but the amount of debt is fairly huge. But the amount of, with, with, yeah. that, with that kind of debt, I mean, I think you end up getting stuck in a system. I mean, you know, the first five years of your, you know, between residency and getting into your first, you know, career, you know, decision, it, it's still not a lot of money when you consider how much money you're going to have to pay back, you know, th- with that kind of debt. I, and I think it ends up forcing people to like get stuck in the business of medicine rather than on, on the art of it. Uh, have you ever seen the YouTube by Z Dog? It's it's about the. It starts out with about burnout. Oh, yeah, it's yeah, eleven minute yeah, thing yeah. or six minutes, pretty yeah, short. But yeah. Z D O G G. He's a doc who gives little YouTube things. Yeah, I've seen it. And he talks about this is not burnout. This is moral injury. <laughs> and I started crying when I when I because I've never heard it called moral injury, and I knew immediately he named it. And when you name something yeah. that you know deep in you, I just yeah. tears start pouring out. It was so powerful because he says it, doctors go in with big empathy genes and want to help, and then they get caught in a system where all they're doing is just running through patients, yeah. and they have a moral injury. And so there's like uh, every week there's two doctor deaths, sh- suicides, something every year now. Yeah, in, I believe it's the, the highest. I believe it's, it's the just, highest suicide rate profession now. Yeah, it's just like a couple every week. Come on. Yeah. It's. Yeah. And and I think there's 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 some there's some other stuff going on there that I don't totally understand, but I think, and and I, strangely or not so strange, I I treat a lot of doctors. <laughs> every every pretty much every job I've had where I've worked in a in a clinic setting, I've spent at least a third of my time treating the staff. 
Yeah. You know, with the craniosacral with therapy? Cranio, with craniosacral especially. Yeah. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and you know, whether it's, I, I've worked with psych, I've worked with... <laughs> it doesn't matter. Generally, we're all kind of it's, in the same thing, you know, and, it, and it's, it's not an easy thing to, you know, to hold that that space for people day in and day out, day out for long periods of time. In the 60s and 70s, I don't think I knew a doctor who didn't pretty much like practicing medicine. Yeah. And by the year 2000, I couldn't say that at all. I knew that right? 100 doctors. I knew, you know, still a lot of them like it, but it really has changed in the 40 years. And, or, yeah, so uh, there's a lot of, lot of, I think, not just burnout, but moral injury as the system changed, became more businesslike. Yeah. Where, where was your first job? Well, uh, my after internship, I was in the Peace Corps for three years, so I was working at an Aborigine hospital in Malaysia. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I transferred and did a year in Ghana. We're doing public health, helping set up a malaria eradication TB control program. Then I did. Then family medicine started as a specialty. Hmm. Family medicine didn't exist until uh, late 60s. And so in 1970, I went and did my, after, my last two years of family medicine residency. And so then I went to Mankato and started practice. Where, where, did, where did you do your internship? I Santa Barbara, California, then Peace Corps for three years, then for the last two years of family medicine residency in Oklahoma City. Huh. There were only eight programs then. Now there's 200. Yeah. But there were only, so it was easy to choose. I looked, looked through a little list. And yeah. So, so with, with family practice at that point, what, what kind of stuff did you feel? What was, the, what was your sort of daily work like? Oh, it was uh, just really great. Uh, that's one of the things, Jeremy, is that I think at first, when I had my first years in the 70s in Mankato, probably if I don't count newborn uh, well-child checks and OB visits and just counted the other patients who came yeah. in, probably 70% of my patients came in with acute care. Yeah. They had asthma or bronchitis or colds or ear infections or broken bones or lacerations because there was no doctors in the ER at that time, hmm. even in Mankato, a big town. Just there was, you, you know, there weren't doctors there. Yeah. It's like I was on call. There were, say, 30 of us, and we each took one 24-hour shift in the ER but that didn't mean we were in the ER. We were in our office, so when I met the ER, if you came in with an auto accident, they'd call me and I'd leave my office and go up to the ER to see you. Huh. It, there weren't ER doctors. And, uh, it's, and so all the your average ER, you know, people, your sick patients came in. And by the time I left, it was a reverse. It was 20% of my patients were acute care and 80% were chronic care. It just the whole system had shifted. So I had this nice blend in a practice of seeing regular OB visits and well child checks. So that's yeah, one yeah, whole thing. Yeah. And then seeing some chronic patients with problems and then seeing another third of the practice that had just acute care. Yeah. And it was a beautiful blend. And, and now when every doctor sits in that office, they see no acute care. They primarily see pretty sick, chronically ill people who we don't know what to do with them right. because they have environmental problems or all sorts of other problems. Uh, and so it's much more frustrating to practice outpatient medicine. That's, that's interesting to think. I, I, I think back a lot of times to my, I was a child in the 70s. <laughs> so yeah. I think I, and my, my mom didn't, single parent child. So I, I, you know, I, I know my mom didn't have a lot of money for medical care, but you know, stuff came up. I broke my arm, <laughs> messed up my knee one time. You know, I was pretty young when some of this stuff happened. And just the way that I sort of went through the system, it seemed it seemed more relaxed and easier, and you yeah. know that the, just if, when I think back about because and and I think, you know, we all kind of model our the way that we end up sort of practicing. <laughs> I think based on 
what what our experience was, right? I mean, we there's there's bits and pieces of all these different doctors probably that we knew that we you know kind of think about. But when when I hear you say this that 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 things have changed to this degree, there's there's there, there's clearly something going on you know in our environment that's also has to be problematic. So the amount of chronic disease I saw a year ago in an article, and it wasn't referenced, so I don't know how accurate it is, but it said the the incidence of chronic disease in the United States in the last 30 years has gone up 3,000%. And I looked at that and I said, absolutely. It just, people, when I talk to medical students, like, and, and I would say, no, in the 60s and 70s, I didn't have one patient with type 2 diabetes. In the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I, uh, I maybe had three people I diagnosed with depression. Now, and I, took, I gave all my new patients a depression scale. Yes, I might have missed a little depression, right, but right. people just weren't very depressed in southern, rural southern Minnesota. Yeah. And, uh, and chronic fatigue didn't exist, uh, you know, except for one patient every three months. Or right, right. Those kind of chronic, tough problems that now physicians don't know what to do about it. Yeah, it, it's really changed. Practice is really changing. There's a great book out by Victoria Sweet, a physician from San Francisco, and it's called Slow Medicine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if yeah. you've heard of it, yeah. but it just is one of my favorite because I I've been calling it. it acute care medicine is what we do now well in Western medicine. Yeah. But uh, chronic care medicine is we're doing a lousy job. Well, and she and those are never good names. She named it Fast Medicine, which is our ER hospital mm-hmm. medicine that we do well. And then she called chronic care medicine slow medicine. It's just and they're like two different things. We shouldn't even call it medicine because or the same name. Because outpatient chronic care medicine, just we have to so much go upstream to figure out, well, why is your body doing this? Right. You know, it's all backtracking at that point. It's all backtracking. Figure, well, why? What's it in its wisdom trying to do? Well, it's, you have got asthma and all that stuff because you've got mold in your house. Mm-hmm. Or you've got, you know, this because of you're sitting at a computer 10 hours a day. Or you, yeah. But we're not doing that. We're just sort of looking at the symptoms just like we would acute care, treating it with a pharmaceutical and moving on. So I think that's going to be the biggest change that's going to happen. We're going to now, and you know who's taking over that role of doing good chronic care medicine, our chiropractors and naturopaths and physical therapists and, you know, you know, yeah. a whole lot of other people. Because I, it's, it's been a big part of my, my practice. You your know? Pra- yeah. Craniosacral therapist. I, I, you know, and I, and I, I get, I get a lot of these idiopathic, you know, people sent to me because they've been to 20 people already right. and they're not getting better. And, you know, I have my limited toolbox and I'm just trying to think of ways, you know, with, with what I know, or I, I, I first just have to have the experience of like my hands on this person and see what, what goes on and, 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 you know, start developing this relationship and getting as much information as I can from them. And sometimes there's like very small things that I also pick up from them that are, that are like, no one asked you this question yet. <laughs> and sometimes it's very, it's a very simple thing. Yeah. I had this really actually interesting thing. This is probably maybe seven or eight years ago. 10-year-old boy comes brought in by his mom and he's he's having these panic attacks and they they seem to be I can't remember how they they had done all these neurological tests with him basically and I mean he had been through the ringer really smart kid they started thinking he's probably on the spectrum or he has you know some kind of a, he's, he's, he's got an anxiety disorder or maybe he's depressed. And, and, and you and I were talking about some of this stuff before, so I feel like it leads right into it. Turns out, I, I just asked the right question and I said, tell me about the last time that it happened. And he said, well, 
I was walking down the, the sidewalk and this big truck came by, made really loud noise. I said, oh, that's interesting. And when I, when I was treating him, I was working around his temporal bones and all of a sudden he said, I, I hear fluid, I hear fluid moving. And so that's interesting. And I think he had some sort of block, you know, in his, yeah. in his ear, in his inner ear. And he, he stopped having panic attacks. And it released. Yeah. And, it, and it, all these, I mean, but th that's, that's a very physiological thing that I was able to address. But then you deal with things like EMFs, mold, Lyme, yeah. all, all these other things where we, we can't even, or, you know, the, the different chemical components from, from, you know, crops and these things that we can't even identify. And you know, one of my, my, my friend who I was telling you about, who was, he was at Mayo for a while, and he said, this is one of the sickest towns I've ever worked in. <laughs> and he thinks it's from something that's in the air or something that's, you know. In, in, in Rochester? In Rochester from the, you know, from the farmland that's, huh. you know, just kind of floating, floating into that area. And he just, one thing after another well, that he's seeing. the Roundup glyphosate could be floating in. Right, you right. You know, it could be getting into the, into the drinking water. It, who knows? Uh, you know, it makes me think of a, uh, of a story uh, of just the difference of slow medicine and fast medicine. Uh, last summer, uh, we have a bunch of us, my kids, my nephews, and I go up to one of the cab front nephews' cabins and play golf for a couple days. Mm -hmm. And so it's on the first night uh, after the 18 holes. And now I hadn't used my upper body much or anything for, you know, and so I golfed 18 holes. And uh, that night we're eating dinner around the cabin in the, and uh, I started getting heartburn and indigestion. And, uh, and I said, excuse me, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go lie down a little bit. It's 7 o'clock at night. Yeah. And so I'm lying there, and my son, who's an osteopathic physician out in Maine, who does only osteopathic manipulation, he, uh, he doesn't do much pharmaceutical medicine. Wow. And anyway, he came in and said, turn around on the bed, Dad. And, uh, he, and I'm pouring. At this point, I've got a lot of chest pain, and I'm sort of filling up a glass about every 10 minutes with just discharge from my mouth. So much liquid is coming out. Huh. It's that. And so uh, it, uh, and he starts working on my head, and after about uh, doing some stuff, and about five, six, seven minutes later, I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm just doing some manipulation. And... I said, well, why? he said, why? I said, because I'm about 50% better, and this is impossible, that you could be doing <laughs> something with my head. And he said, well, and he just did a little more, and in about 15 minutes, I was 100%. I'd quit discharging the medication, the fluid, the spit, and I had no chest pain. He said, what'd you do? He said, well, I figured you hadn't used your upper body much. You golfed 18 holes today. I figured maybe your vagus nerve was having a problem. Yep. And uh, so I'm, I'm working. I said, oh, is there a vagus nerve back there? <laughs> you know, medical doctors, we for, totally forget our anatomy. Right. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, what does that have to do with this? And he says, well, it goes down and it, uh, it, the, the esophageal gastric junction, it has right in the diaphragm area. And I said, and so that was it. 20 minutes later, and I was 100% normal. Yeah. And I said, Tim, do you realize that I was close to needing to go to an ER I would have gone to an ER. I would have gotten a total cardiac workup. Yep. They would have said, I don't see any heart damage. And they would have sent me home. You might have got some reflux. And I might have or... gotten an H2 blocker. <laughs> <laughs> and I would have been on H2 blocker for the next 10 years. Right. 
Right. You know, I mean, and I thought, oh, my God, this is a metaphor for right now for medicine in general. Yeah. And you as a craniosacral must see it all the time where they've been through everything. And then you do two treatments of craniosacral. And, you know, but I, this was so dramatic because I, I'm a pretty good doctor, but it never occurred to me that, oh, my body would just got overworked. I, the yeah. vagus nerve got pinched with tight muscles. Yeah. All I did was a little release it, and suddenly I'm normal. It's it's surprising, and you know, and I and I've talked to you know I've I've had uh, some I've talked to some other osteopaths on the on the podcast, and there are things that even even from our understanding, I mean, there, I've I've worked with kids with extreme allergies that just go and like stuff that I can't, I don't even know if I can completely explain. But when you're when, when, when getting back to this, I you know idea of slow medicine. It's not that slow. I mean, you know, when it comes right down to it, that I could, you know, within an hour or with the child, within 30 minutes, you know, that's about how long my sessions usually are, that I can have this kind of yeah. effect is, it's it's surprising. It's, it's I mean, what I charge, and I, you know, unfortunately, insurance won't reimburse for me. So I've had to work outside of that and I can, you know, HSA will, will cover my costs and stuff like that. So there's, there's ways, you know, for people to come see me and use some kind of insurance-based dollars. But that that it's it's such a cost effective way of at least trying as a as an initial piece let's let's see what happens with this let's see if if yeah. you know if especially if i su- suspect there's like a history of trauma you know if something comes comes through an intake or something that they will just tell me or there's been something recent like a loss of a a parent or child you know these these are all the kinds of things that i see but they have physiological issues Absolutely. going on too yeah Let's let me just focus on what I know I can help this person with, which is relaxation response, helping balance their autonomic system, and let's just see where let's let's see what that next week looks like after that. And a lot of times, mm. it's it it there's there's a big shift that goes on. Well, it's why a lot of the chiropractors are changing their practices into you know they're working with kids with ADHD and hyperactivity yeah, and yeah. short attention spans because that's that's a lot of that stuff is nerve related and if you move the body around in certain ways and the muscles and fascia yeah. makes huge changes yeah. and uh, they're chiropractic neurologists they're they're helping people with post concussion syndrome yeah I've had two people friends who weren't getting better after six months of physical therapy, and both of them were healed in a month with a chiropractic neurologist. Yes. And I go, you know, this was back four or five years ago, what's a chiropractic neurologist? I'd never heard of it. So the whole primary care is changing so much, and I think medical doctors are sort of being left out of it. We're, we're, not, we're not training them yeah. well in outpatient medicine. Yeah, and, and, and this is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you, because I, I feel like you, you are forward-thinking in a way that I think... I wouldn't. Actually, I don't even want to say that other doctors aren't. I actually think a lot of doctors are. They just they they don't have, or they haven't put themselves in the center of things like you. Have. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 it is you know it's you and I had this conversation before about about curiosity, and and about that being one of the you know one of the other missing pieces, and that you know your your curiosity was what really drove this you know your your the whole of your career basically. Yeah. And and that's and that's one of those things that I, I I think you know going back to the medical student how do we how do we get that into in, into the teaching because I feel like that's that's really what's needed right now. Yeah, we really do need to, uh, especially in residency. That's 
that, you know, the medical school is a basic learning, but those three years of residency are where we really need to do a different job. And uh, I started a rural residency in Mankato back uh, in the 90s. And I just, after three years, I had to leave because it, it uh, I just wasn't allowed by the Academy of Family Practice to teach it in the way I thought it should be taught. Yeah, yeah. It was still basically doing teaching the way I'd been taught 30 years earlier. Yeah. It, we were, you know, it, it was... Uh, just an example, I had I had one of the women of my uh, first year resident who knew she wanted to have kids, knew she didn't want to do OB, and so I contacted the academy uh, or the board to see if I could skip her OB training, which is quite extensive for family docs. Yeah. And they said no. And I said, that doesn't make any sense. What, why would I have three years of training in OB if she knows she's not going to do deliveries? Yeah. Well, it's because family doctors are womb to tomb. And I said, that's, you know, and I had a lot of things like that. A lot of things came up. I would contact them and see, can I know you have to do this? A family doctor has to know how to do deliveries. And that, seeing that kind of rigidity, I just, that was uh, constant through my program. And so I, after three years, I stepped down. And yeah. uh, I, I just, it, because I could have taught them holistic and integrative medicine. I could have taught them community health stuff, how to look out at the community and look at the bigger picture. All right. Uh, and and I think you know, I don't I don't have a problem with with specialty per se, but I think what ends up happening is if you try to if you try to kind of veer out of specialty, there are kind of blockers for you almost. It's like no, you stay in your little box over here, you know. And I and I think we should we should allow for growth in a career, you know. Just because you spent some time you know working in infectious infectious disease doesn't mean you can't move into you know, something more general. I think that that specialty is now going to be a, a huge bonus to whatever your practice is. Mm-hmm. But we, I, and, and I've, I've been lucky in my career to just kind of, I think mine was sort of like yours in a way that I, I was just directed by the community as to what it needed. You know, <laughs> I didn't, I didn't plan on working with babies. That was, I, I was kind of starting out working with mostly orthopedic issues. I liked working with because I, I, similar to you, I had a background in sports. I liked solving these these kinds of orthopedic challenges, and having you know gotten into this field to solve my own, <laughs> I, yeah. I I liked that. But you know, as I was also becoming a parent and also seeing other parents and the anxiety of parents around different health challenges with with kids, and then learning kind of you know what a lot of the early you know nursing challenges are, di- you know digestive is- issues. I. I just kind of, you know, my heart just kind of went out to some of these parents, and you know, I just got, I just got involved, and then, oh, and then I went, went back and studied, studied pediatric work, just because I felt like, well, I'm in this community, nobody else seems to be resourcing this, and it, you know, it took a while before the, the medical, you know, places that there was, a, there was about four pediatric pra- practices in that area that were all pretty set. They'd been there for quite a while, and there are, there are a lot more now even, but. They were they were kind of resistant, except for one who was the longest time there, and she <laughs> taught at Columbia, and she was she ended up becoming involved in one of my child's illnesses. My daughter had meningitis as a Ooh, as a baby, ouch, scary one, but she's fine, and she's and she did great. But I, it was it was uh, kind of amazing that I had developed a relationship with her before this happened with my daughter because. It would, to, to have that kind of resource at that moment in my life was crucial. Absolutely. And, but, you know, I think what they started realizing was that when there was a baby who was, you know, failing to thrive or, you know, whatever they call it, or they were really not putting on weight well, or they were concerned about head growth or, you know, those, those kinds of things, they would call on me and say, 
will you take a look at this baby and just let me know what you think? You know, oh, that's great. It's and nice it was in the Brooklyn area, and that was in the Brooklyn area to yeah. have to have and and to feel like someone someone saw my my usefulness. You know, as a as a practitioner, it was pretty specialized. But yeah. you know, oddly enough, now. I've become more general in the way that I've worked with a lot of mental health and, you know, babies and orthopedics. And now a lot of some of these sort of chronic health conditions that are popping up, which is what, you know, you and I kind of wanted to dig into a little more today, too. Every uh, every obstetric uh, labor and delivery place uh, should have uh, somebody doing cranial sacral with the newborns. You know, it just... It would it would make a huge difference. Yeah, and I think people don't realize just what gentle work it is and right. how easy it is for yeah. you know. For, and how traumatic birth is sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that's you know, that. Just, uh, we're so we're so traumatized as parents that we don't realize what <laughs> what the the baby is going right. through. And and now with so many you know so many d- deliveries happen happening in C sections. Well, true. And adding pitocin to the mix and all these different yeah. pieces, you know, like it, it ends up being a lot of medication. Uh, just uh, I think things again like there we're we're adding more things to the mix that we just don't really understand the long term effects of, and how that might like one of my one of my instinctive you know pieces about about working with babies with digestive issues is that. There's a, there's a couple different things. If they if the mom receives pitocin and the baby is vaginally delivered, you know pitocin is is, is causes contraction. So mm-hmm. and we have this peristaltic rhythm. We don't know how much the the baby is affected by this this medication and what that might actually do to the nervous system of the baby. Right. Right. So there's there's that, and then maybe there's something about about vaginal delivery that actually allows for peristaltic movement to to really kick into gear because i and those are the two situations that i often see with with babies that i think you know i see this over and over again this is a pattern i see there's got to be something here i can't yeah. I, I don't know if i can measure this in, in any other way except for this observation but it's I, you know and the same the same could be true for a lot of the things that you, you know you and i were talking about discussing mold i think and the varying forms of that now really needs to have a, a real t- strong testing mechanism as a as a first you know uh, measure rather than like what you're you know suggesting which is that instead of and when we ha- when we have someone who basically seems to have all these these other things that we, that we we what well, we can name we can create names for it like oh that's chronic fatigue or that's depression or maybe they actually are are in, you know have mold or some inflammation as it relates to something like that Probably somewhere in the next 20 years, we'll be just like in the 60s, 70s, we started routinely checking cholesterol, blood pressure, yeah. uh, type 2 for uh, blood sugar. You know, we didn't, that wasn't done in the 40s and 50s. And then it sort of became, oh, we need to check these things. Somewhere in the next, I hope it's the next five years, it'll probably be 25, yeah. we'll be routinely checking for glyphosate for uh, heavy metals, uh, yeah, urine, yeah. for mold and mycotoxin, for, you know, those will just be routine tests. And it, lead, you yeah. know, it's like uh, all the heavy, it'll change, it'll change medical care dramatically. And we should be doing it now, you know, pretty routinely and anybody with a chronic problem. But uh, what, what is the cost of these, of these, and these tests aren't, aren't covered at the moment? Uh, some are, some aren't. It depends on your plan and, you know, okay. that kind of thing. But yeah. they're not, no one is routinely, do, no one is even, mo- most of the doctors don't even know how to do them and don't do them. And yet they're probably, half their patients with chronic disease probably are suffering from those problems. 
Huh. It's uh, it's just it's we're just it's strange to me because there's enough evidence even in the medical literature that uh, you know it, uh, that there's plenty of these problems, plenty yeah. of books out, a lot of papers, but we're not ready to make the change yet. S- sort of like dairy when. When pretty a lot of papers came out on that dairy is not good for some people, not just lactose intolerance, yeah. but casein is just is not you know, it's still uh, there's not ten or twenty percent of doctors in the United States who put people on a dairy elimination diet, even try it, hmm. and yet it's a major cause of illness for so many people. Is that right? Oh yeah, dairy is just a really <laughs> troubled food for a lot of people. Yeah, and back way back in the early 80s, the head of pediatrics at Johns Hopkins wrote a book called Don't Drink Your Milk. And, you know, so it came from the top, Johns Hopkins would be like yeah. Mayo, be yeah. like, didn't make any difference. Here it is 40 years later, and there's still not a pediatrician who even barely thinks gets a milk history. Yeah. He had all the data, he had lots of studies, everything. Yeah, well, it's interesting from from the perspective of babies, you know, and 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 we, I, you know, I end up dealing with a lot of these babies too, who they maybe suspect there's some kind of an allergy going on in the way that, you know, they're looking at the stool and saying, well, this is the quality or this is what's going on, and there's also like a lot of refluxy stuff happening, or the baby's not putting on weight, and you know, it's very rarely the mother's milk that's causing any sort of problems no. or the, right. no. you know, every once in a while the mom's Brev- diet Brev- needs to be is. adjusted because they're, they're eating dairy or they're yeah. eating a lot of acidic foods or something. But, but almost, you know, most of the babies who end up on formula or if there's some kind of whey product in the, in the formula, yeah. that's when the, 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 the problems really kick up for the baby. So it's, it becomes sort of obvious to, to, to break down at that point. And yet, we still, you know, as a culture, I, I think you're right. We just we we don't really realize the impact of of that on our on our digestive systems. It should almost, in my opinion, not be a decision that the mother can make that I'm going to breastfeed or not breastfeed. She has to breastfeed. Right. You know, I mean, it just and if it doesn't work, then that's one thing. But we if we supported them in ways right from the beginning, really helped them breastfeed. You know, with with uh, nurse midwives and others who lactation could do that. Consultants. Lactation consultants most women would be able to breastfeed and then it would make a huge difference in the amount of illness in the kids. Yeah. And and there, you know, I don't know if you know about this, but over by North Memorial there's they're they're starting this breast milk bank now. And it's going to be it's there there used to be one in Ooh, Iowa. That's great. I didn't know and that. And it's 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 this I I happen to be working with the woman who is writing the grant for it and the woman who is running the program. Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> um, ex- that's exciting. It's really exciting and you know the, the amount of milk that they can take in and process is very exp- expensive equipment to, you know, do because there's a lot of health concerns around people donating milk. But the, you know, especially for communities, I think, and, and you know, that part of Minneapolis in, in, in particular, I think it's, it's, a, it's an area that's going to be really well served with something like this because of the, the long-term, like, positive impacts of being able to have access to breast milk if you're, if you're unable to produce. That's great. Yeah, so, that's and, and maybe we'll talk less about some of these other <laughs> issues if our immune systems can actually, you know, manage. I mean, that's got to be another part of what's going on with us too. That it's it's not it's not it's not just the things in the environment. It's not one. It's not one thing. It's not just mold. No. It's not just the way farming is being done. It's like the combination of all mm. these things and the changes. And it's it you know. The, the speed at which we think we can kind of, you know, produce things in our life or the, 
everything at the at the price of productivity is is taking its toll on us as as, as beings. Yeah, the environment is big uh, on the physical environment. Also, are you familiar with the adverse childhood experience yeah, questionnaire, yeah. the ACE questionnaire? Yeah. You know, those 10 questions are overwhelming. If you have zero yes answers, you're just about a 95% chance you're going to be healthy. And if you have seven, eight, nine yes answers, chances are about 80, 90% you're going to have illness. Yeah. You know, and, and, and then the, it's a straight curve. So... Uh, just for the audience, so these questionnaires are, were you raised in a single-parent family? Did you have abuse, uh, physical, emotional, sexual abuse as a child? All those different things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and isn't food access to different kinds of food a, a part of it, too? I, mean, I think a lot, of these, a lot of these kids end up in, in these you know, parts of cities that are kind of food deserts, so they end up living off of processed foods until you know, yeah. their adult years most of the time. Yeah. Um, well, I want to I want to just wrap up with um, a couple of quick questions for you. What, what would you like to see with this this group that you've started? Do you do you have do you have any any vision in terms of what we can do? Because I'm part of this group, <laughs> the Minnesota I, Holistic the, Medicine Group. Yes, and, and you know, being being now, not we just say 900 people, 900 practitioners, know, 900 practitioners. I, I because one of my missions, sort of by doing these these podcasts, is also to to activate more people in in both inform people who are who are you know either trying to improve their their health experience or people who are involved in in health fields to maybe enlighten them about what's what's going on in some in a field that they that they're you know don't don't have a lot of experience with or to even inspire them to kind of push into something that they thought was kind of a limitation in their field and, and, and take off into that. And I feel like that's, that's been kind of your mission too. Yeah, my three mission, my three goals from the start have been, number one, to uh, help practitioners in healthcare find other practitioners who are part of their tribe. And by that, I mean who think like we do in a more holistic way and, and collaborative way. Number two are to learn from each other because each discipline has its own skills. And uh, and then three to be able to refer appropriately. So maybe it's get, basically let's get to know each other, yeah. uh, learn from each other, and refer appropriately. Because I don't even want to refer to an MD yeah, that yeah. I don't I know, know well. Yeah. And so it's the same. How am I going to refer to an acupuncturist or a craniosacral person if I don't know them? And and this way we can connect with each other and learn from each other. So yeah, I I, uh, I, I see that as a uh, you know a continuing goal. Uh, I, I, one of the biggest things I see uh, is for medicine to understand that maybe it's time for Western conventional allopathic medicine to do what we really do well, which is what Victoria Sweet calls fast medicine. Mm-hmm. Hospital medicine, ER medicine, acute illness. It, what's really, it, and the key word is what's wrong? What's the diagnosis? Well, we do the, unfortunately, with slow medicine, with chronic illness, we do the same thing. We just, you come in, we make a diagnosis, mm-hmm. you have asthma, you have depression, you have this, then we give you a pharmaceutical. That's totally the wrong way to practice slow medicine because it's, what is diagnosis isn't really important because if I have 10 people with asthma, I probably should be using 10 different treatments. Mm-hmm. If I have 10 people with depression, maybe two of them, two people with depression, should be on an SSRI, but one of them needs thyroid changes, one needs to get out of a marriage, one needs to leave a job, right. one needs to have body work done because they have pinched nerves that's causing depression, one yeah. is them having, one's having heavy metal or lead poisoning, yeah. you know, 
know, I just had a son who was eating tuna fish sandwiches the last three years for lunch, and and he was sort of a little bit depressed, not doing very well, and he had mercury toxicity. Yeah, uh, you know, you heard the story. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it just and I'm thinking this is a really healthy wellness person. And he was really suffering from mercury toxicity from just eating too many tuna fish sandwiches. He had chelation, oral chelation. Three months later, he's like a new person. It's two years later now. And he's just maintained like he, instead of being 50, it's like he's 25. Yeah. It's, it's like a new life. And I'm going, how many millions of people are out there like Tim? You know, just the lead toxicity that people are getting from pipes. We think Flint, Michigan. I remember yeah, the woman who, the yeah. pediatrician, discovered Flint, Michigan and made it a big thing. Yeah. She said, if you think Flint, Michigan's a problem, it's the needle in a haystack. It's the, you know, it's, it's, we're all suffering from this kind of environmental toxicity because just all our pipes are lead. And you think after 20 years, it's not peeling off on the inside. Yeah, right, right. You know, and, uh, so I think it's a really exciting time. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, uh, these last years, I really thought I'd like to go back into medicine for about the last 10 years. I didn't want to. And now these last three or four. Is that right? Because I think it's going to be like the 60s where we're going to start to go upstream and really look at, well, why are all these people chronically ill? And pretty soon we'll be starting to measure for the roundup in people and, the, and their omega-3s and uh, their heavy metals and their you know, we'll really look at their environment and start mold and mycotoxin, all the different things that, why are people getting chronic Lyme? Why are they doing this? What's, these, what's happening? And I, and I think all practitioners will have a much, it won't just be in the medical MD system. Yeah. I think chiropractors, nature paths, body workers, everybody, it's going to start having a much bigger role. I think it's an exciting time. Do you, do you think there's a, there's a chance that, that insurance might actually get to a point in the U.S.? <clears throat> Where they they see the benefit for themselves financially, of of pulling some of these other parts of the system into insurance care, or do you think that's not even worth having having a, a, an involvement with with insurance? Do you think it's better for you know some of those things to stay outside of the system? That's a great question because uh, the insurance runs so much of what we do in medicine and. Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, you know, the insurance companies are tend to give big salaries to certain people, and they're they're you know, it's a system that I wish we just went to Medicare for all without a supplement. You know, I can't stand that Medicare that we have to now go through the same thing by supplements every. You know, right. why don't we just have a system that gives care to all? And we would cut down the amount of paperwork. Something I saw: twenty percent of all healthcare costs just come from the paperwork. Hmm. And even now, with when I have Medicare. I have to have a supplement like Blue Cross or something. Yep. Well, the amount of paperwork that comes through is just staggering. I go yep. to one little visit and I get three different sheets of paper coming in the mail about it. Yep. And that's that's just crazy stuff. If we had a system of, of basically health coverage for all, sort of like our public school system. Right. It, why don't we repeat the public school system? Yep. And, you know, it... Uh, if people want to start a few little off-the-side uh, private places, like we have private schools, that'd be okay. But 90% of people would uh, would get their care without supplement, just to be one system. Yeah. And um, we would change things so dramatically. Yeah. So... Well, one other uh, one other question I have for you, which is a little bit of a selfish question, but um, I'm curious. I, I know you're a, you're a Dr. Upledger. Dr. John Upledger is one of your heroes. He happens to be mine as well. <laughs> so I'm I'm just curious to know how you ended up, 
you know, finding out about him and, and what your, how, how you became interested in him, how he came onto your radar? He was at one of our national holistic conferences in Chicago, and Uplinger talked that day on, on uh, general osteopathy, cranial sacral work, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then afterward, he said he was going to do treatments on people for like $5. He would just uh, sort mm-hmm. of... And so I went up after the talk and asked if I could just stand there with him and help him. Not, you know, just... He said, sure. So I got to stand there for an hour with him while he worked on... He would just do 10-minute visits on people. And on about the fourth patient, this was in Chicago, on about the fourth person he saw, it happened to be my patient from Mankato, Minnesota. She was at the conference, uh, a a teacher at Mankato State University who was teaching health science or something, and she just wanted to go to a holistic conference. It was close enough. And uh, I had been seeing her for this problem. And uh, so uh, he uh, started working on her, and, uh, and, and she started crying. And, uh, and then, you know, it it was still, I just, it, it moves me so much. She, uh, her problem was, uh, a a frozen left shoulder Mm -hmm. and I had had her see physical therapy. I ejected cortisone. I'd done all this different stuff and and nothing was helping. Well, anyway, uh, she cried and cried as he was working on her. And then so afterwards I, she went out and I followed her and I sort of left and I said, what 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 happened? What came up for you as he was working on you? And she said, 25 years ago when I was 17, I got pregnant, and I sat in my bedroom on the at the window with my arm like this, that left arm, uh, with my head on it, wondering what to do. I ended up having an abortion, but I've never forgiven myself. And this left shoulder had started bothering like 30 years later, mm. and and uh, and so she had a frozen shoulder. So he did this little work on her, and then, of course, I followed her up when I got back home, and the problem was gone, and she never had another problem. And he had released something energetically that blocked, uh, you know, and why did it start 30 years later? Yeah. You know, but the body's a strange thing. And I, I'll never, and then the other thing he did was he, one of the, I'm up at, sort of just watch him, he says, okay, put your hand under this woman's sacrum. Uh, under the seat and just put your hands on the sacrum. Yeah. So I did, and I did, you know, three minutes later, and then suddenly I'm feeling this huge pulsation. Yeah. And he looks at me and smiles, <laughs> and and and, I, and he's working on the head and neck. Yeah. And I'm going, wait, this isn't the pulse. This isn't a pulse because so I took one hand off and felt her ephemeral pulse because yeah. I thought, was well, this the blood vessel? Right. But it wasn't. I'm right. feeling one pulse here, and I'm feeling, and it's going whoosh, whoosh. Yeah. And I go. Dr. Uppelger, this is the craziest thing. And he laughed. He smiled and said, pretty amazing, isn't it? And he had released energy. I mean, it was like I might as well have had him fly in the air because it's impossible to my way of thinking as a young doctor that you could be playing around with somebody's head and neck and I'm feeling it down in the sacrum, this energy. And he just said, that's energy. And so that, talk about changing a worldview. I can imagine. What year was this? Oh, gosh, probably the late 80s. Yeah. Yeah. So he had he had probably already started his school at that point. I think maybe he was just, just starting his school about yeah. that time. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah, would have been late 80s, early 90s, somewhere right in there. It's pretty incredible. And my my one of my <laughs> early experiences just taking coursework with, you know, some of his a lot of the a lot of the early, you know, 
students of his have become teachers, you know, through the Upledger Institute. And so I've worked with a, a number of them now, and oh. they're incre- and their stories are incredible, you know. Just yeah. So, I, but I have I never got to meet him myself. So, I, I can I, and I've from what I've heard, he's a very intense guy, and his presence is you know quite something. <laughs> <laughs> but he's also like incredibly sensitive, incredibly you know book smart and detailed in the way that he his his books are like you know, so well put together yeah. in terms of like all the anatomy, every single, and, and if there's any, if there's any mystery in there, he's really kind of leaving that open, you know, and I, I think that's kind of an amazing thing. And what, what you saw happen with this woman was what we call somatoemotional release, which is just the way that we sort of store this information in our bodies. And yeah. we all have, you know, different kinds of things. And, you know, really it, it takes someone to really be you know, sort of attentive and have their intention be in the right place when you're working with them for you to be able to have the experience that this woman had of being able to go right back into that, that sense of, you know, what, what was going on with her, you know, her at that point in her life and how she felt it in her shoulder and that, that she could, that she was able to release that. Yeah. So, yeah. It, uh, yeah, I hope it's like this cylindrical thing that we, we do all, you know, before 1940s, we didn't have a lot. And so we did all emotional, spiritual, social type of medicine. Yeah. And then in the last 60 or 70 years, we've had these ad- incredible advances. So we moved the site spiral goes, now all we do is physical medicine. We forget yeah. that we're spiritual, social, emotional beings yeah. besides being physical. Right. And so I hope these next 50 years will be some balance of, yes, there's a place for the physical, but let's not forget that we're, we're also spiritual, emotional, social beings that we need to look at everything. Yeah, I agree, and I, and I do think that the, there is there is something happening these last few years that's that is shifting, and I and I think part of it might be just that people are waking up to the fact that there you know there's plenty of people who I'm just talking to doctor friends of mine, there are plenty of people who just don't care about their their health, but I th- I think there are also people who are starting to realize that who they are and how they feel and what they want to do with their lives and all these things are dependent on paying attention to what's what's going on and they're and they're they're seeking the kinds of care practitioners who are going to help them through that you know and it's and i think in some ways health coaching is becoming a a, a bigger sort of model for things and and i think they, they get I've, i they, i hear they get made fun of sometimes and i and i think it's not quite fair because it really does take a certain amount of guidance to take somebody through a process. We, you know, we we have to become our own advocates at this point in, in medicine uh, as patients, and we really should have more help than that, you know. And if there are people who are willing to really throw themselves in there and say, "Let me let me hold your hand through the beginning of this and and get you to the right pe- you know the right people or get you into the right practices." That's really something that's crucial right now. I'm really glad you brought that up. If I had to say what's the biggest change I think is going to happen, when in the last 50 years, the primary care doctor, the family doc, the internist, the pediatrician was, the, was that health guide. Yes. And in 1992, my wife and I wrote an article for the American Holistic Medical Association newsletter that said the primary care doctor of the future is going to be nurse practitioners, uh, nature pass, health coaches who had even been invented, and chiropractors. Huh. And I can't find the article, but I remember it so well because we sort of were laughing, saying, I wonder if this is true. Well, in the last five or ten years, when health coaching came, I went bingo. Because I go when I'm talking to like groups, I'll say, how many of you have a fitness coach? 
Well, quite a few. Right, right, right. How many of you have a tax accountant coach? Almost everybody has yeah. a tax person. Yeah. How many of you have a financial advisor? Well, if they're in the medical profession, they have a financial. I yeah. say, okay, and how many of you have a medical coach, a health coach? Yeah. And almost none of them, you know, they'll, maybe half of them, but I'll say, and how easy is it to get into your primary care doctor? And, yeah. you know, and I say, the what's going to happen in the next 20, 30 years is everybody's going to have a health coach. That's going to be the go-to person that they'll just be on call and that they're holding your hand to help you. Here's what you need to see. No, you don't need to see an MD or DO. You need to see a uh, acupuncturist or an Ayurvedic practitioner or a psychologist. Or, or you need these tests so for metals. Or you need, need or yeah, yeah here's something person, very specific. Here's a person who specializes in heavy metal stuff and in this. And I, so I think uh, the whole, because who doesn't want, you know, sort of their own doctor? And that's what the health coach is going to be. It's going to be because even my one of my really good friends is my doctor. Yeah. Do you think I can call her and talk to her? No, I get the nurse and then I have to talk to the nurse. And then she goes, talks to the doctor. And then she calls me back, but she didn't get the story straight. And so yeah. I, I break all the rules and I say, Laura, I, t- I email, email her and I say on her personal email, Laura, I'm sorry, but I'm going around the system. I have this question of you. And then she'll email me back. But I realize that's a very privileged position. Yeah. But everybody wants that. You just want to talk to your doctor. You don't yeah. want to talk to the nurse and through them and then get back an answer. Yeah. It, uh, so that's the health coach. I think health coaching is going to be really a big thing. I, I think you're totally right about that. To, yeah. Well, this has been super fun, Bill. Well, I, I hope, we, hope we get to do another one of these at some point. Maybe we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pick another topic for another day. <laughs> That'd be great. All okay. right. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. Bill Manahan, folks. So great to see how much passion and excitement Bill still has for his work, even in retirement. I've I've seen him speak before at the Minnesota Holistic Medical Group, and he's got a great sense of humor, actually. And and it's clear that his vocation continues. And I can only wish that my retirement will be so fruitful. What really struck me, though, in this conversation is Bill's ability to hold two seemingly diverging concepts and understand how and why both are essential to each other. I think it's why we both connect over Dr. Upledger's work. And it gets to the heart of what's meant by holistic, seeing the whole beyond the parts. Let me know what you thought of this topic in conversation. You can email me at jeremy at highwoodhealthpodcast.com. You can also connect with me through the highwoodhealthpodcast.com website on the contact form. And you'll be able to see our entire library of guests there on the site for free. And don't forget to visit our Patreon page to learn more about this project. You can see a two-minute video of me talking about the future, what I'd like to see happen with this, with this project, and you can show your support there and become a sponsor. If you know someone who you think would benefit from hearing this conversation as well, by all means, please share it with them. Thanks for listening and for all that you do. Be good to yourself, be kind to each other, and take care of your planet. Be well, my friends. If you enjoyed podcasts like this, you should check out our other shows on Health Podcast Network. For example, Better with Dr. Erica, hosted by Dr. Erica, provides support and guidance in navigating stress-related challenges to transform your relationship to self-care. Each episode arms you with the tools needed to be better, do better, and live better. There was an incredible episode that you should check out called Touch and Connections as Tools for Healing and Better Mental Health. 
In this episode, her guest breaks down ways to use physical touch as a form of healing for trauma and grief. Check out Better with Dr. Erica on your favorite podcast platform or visit healthpodcastnetwork.com.